0: In your Bibles, to Mark chapter fourteen. Uh, now, I want you to have a little think this evening uh, as we start. When someone speaks to you and they say something uh, negative about you, or or when you do something wrong, uh, what's your immediate response? Just have a think now. What's your immediate response? Is it to to straight deny it? Or perhaps you switch the focus. Well, I did that right. Or at least I'm not like them. Or is there a security that allows you just to say, yeah, I was wrong. I'm really sorry. Because in the midst of it all, when hard things come at us, our responses show... Something deeper, don't they? They show our foundations to our life. What matters most? What's what's driving our living? And in the midst of Jesus' last days before he dies, all that goes on shows foundations. It shows hearts. The pressure is up. And the events show us both foundations that shift and falter, like a, a sandcastle in an earthquake. But also foundations that are solid, immovable. Because it's when life heats up, when things get tougher, that our hearts are revealed. And here in Mark's Gospel, things are really heating up. Jesus just had the Passover meal with his disciples. He was once again predicting his death, once again predicting his betrayal. And now, uh, uh, now, now throughout Jesus' life, he has experienced suffering. It doesn't just start when the nails are driven into his hands. But here as he gets closer and closer to the cross, the suffering uh, do ramp up. and, And our hearts are exposed as it does so. Now this morning we saw, if you were here, that there were two plots. Two plots coming together in these last few chapters. There's this human attempt to kill Jesus. And God's plans... For Jesus to die for the ransom of many. If you remember to be that Passover lamb for his people. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, keep that idea in the background as, as Jesus and his followers go into the night. But here, rather than two plots uh, as the focus, we get two groups. Jesus, the shepherds, that's one. And then his followers, the sheep, that's Two. And although it starts Jesus with his followers, by the end of it, Jesus is alone and his followers are gone. So as we go through these extraordinary hours of the night, keep an eye on those two. How do we get from the the wonderful Lord's Supper, Jesus with his followers together, singing, uh, eating together, to to Jesus arrested, standing alone? Let's have a look now. Now Jesus knows this is going to happen; He sees it all panning out, prophesied in scripture. Have a look at verse twenty seven and Jesus said to them, "You will all fall away, for it is written, "I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered." Now here Jesus is taking words from zechariah thirteen it 's a prophesy uh, sorry a prophecy, a prophecy where God will purify his people through the striking of the shepherd. And he's, and Jesus is saying, this prophecy, it's about us. This is about now. I'm about to die. I'm the shepherd about to be struck by God's design and you are the sheep. You will be scattered. You will fall away. And not surprisingly, the disciples are gutted. They're, they're indignant. What a, what a letdown of a comment it feels like from their leader, their king. You can imagine that feeling of togetherness just kind of empties like the air from a balloon. Now they they knew someone was going to betray Jesus. Perhaps they feel, "No, we can avoid this though. We're not like Judas. Not us. They say, Peter, ever the spokesman, he goes even further. Of course I won't. He even says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And perhaps we shouldn't mock their their ignorance or feel self-righteous that we wouldn't have been so stupid. These guys really wanted to stay firm for Jesus. But there's a disconnect. Jesus is saying, God says you will scatter. And they, they're refusing to believe it. Peter even hears he's going to deny Jesus three times. And yet he still, once again, corrects Jesus. And so as we move into some of the most intense moments of Jesus' life, there's this question hanging in the air. Will the sheep scatter or will they stay close? Will Jesus be right that even against their best intentions, they'll fall away, they'll sin, they'll let Jesus down right at the key moment, right at the moment when he will need them most, right when he's struck by God himself? And if they scatter, well, what of the shepherds? Will he remain firm to the end? Will he hold on to the words of God fulfilling them? Well, you can imagine a quietness kind of falling over the group, can't you? They've all protested their loyalty. But now the words of Jesus are just starting to sink in. So they walk. That's their sandaled feet scratching the familiar path to a garden. The place called Gethsemane. Perhaps it's a it's a walled olive grove with an olive press in it, lit by the moonlight. And here we have two of the most dramatic and intense moments before Jesus' death. Here we get a, a glimpse into the sufferings of our Saviour. Jesus is truly on the walk to the cross. Perhaps the disciples noticed it. Perhaps Jesus' voice starts to crack a little as he he tells them to sit on the dry grass while he goes off to pray. Perhaps they see the shadows on his furrowed brow. The glistening of the, the sweat in the dim light as he, as he asks his closest three to come with him further into the garden. But here we see a Jesus we haven't seen before. Not the calm, the collected Clear speaking, Jesus, not not the one whose face storms, demons, intense questioning without batting an eyelid. Verse 33, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Jesus is entering here a world of agony that is shocking. He he falls to the ground in utter desperation. There's such a weight on his soul. Such a crushing experience of what he's about to go through. He sees the day ahead. He sees the path he's about to walk. The arrest, the trial, the flogging, and then the cross. Now many have faced death like that in a calm way. So what's different here? Well, see Jesus' focus. He cries out, remove this cup. From me, that's how he puts it this cup cup of what? Well throughout the Old Testament, God uses this imagery of a of a drinking a cup for experiencing God's wrath, facing the just punishment for sin and and here Christ sees before him not just his death on a cross, but something far worse he sees his sacrifice for sin. His death as a ransom, his, his body and soul experiencing the punishment of the sinners he's come to save. Now in asking for this to be taken away, he's not rejecting his role. He's not failing to trust God. Asking for it to be taken away is the only right response to what he's about to face. He's looking over the darkness of hell and his soul is recoiling. He could never desire this kind of horror, this kind of punishment. This is why he's in deep distress and sorrow. This is why he falls to his knees and cries out in anguish for it to be taken away. Because he sees the cup of God's wrath that he is about to drink. And yet in the face of it all, here is prayer. Abba, Father, remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. As his whole being is, is recoiling, he entrusts himself to God his Father. He is deep in prayer. Three times he prays this. Three times he calls on his Father. Three times he shows his deep trust. He follows God's path. Not what I will, but what you will. As Sinclair Ferguson has put it, Christ accepts what he could not desire to face. Jesus puts himself in the loving hands of his father. He's firm. He's firm. And yet his disciples. Now his disciples had been asked to watch. To stay awake. Jesus was greatly distressed. He needed them to pray. He needed them to watch with him. Now not just for his sake. He's, he's worried for them. Did you see pray that you may not enter into temptation he says. But he comes back and he finds them asleep. Three times. They've just said they'll stick by him. And in his greatest time of need here, they are asleep. They've utterly let him down. They've rejected his call for prayer. They've failed him in their weakness and their sin. Jesus completely firm, but he's alone in it. They've brought nothing to this moment. Only their their heavy eyes and light snores. And so verse 41, the hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. From the garden, this, this intense emotional experience of what he's about to face, Jesus comes to his arrest and his total abandonment. Firstly, one of his own, one of the 12, it's Judas. Someone who spent three years with Jesus. He's eaten with him. He's learnt from him. Even that evening he had supper with him. And Judas comes up to him and gives him a kiss. A symbol of friendship. A symbol of intimacy, closeness, trust. What a kiss to give. To betray someone with a kiss. The utter sham. The facade. It's like driving a knife into his heart with a smile. And then as the disciples see what's going on, they first try and take things into their own hands. One gets a sword out. But as Jesus does not fight, they realize this is actually going to happen. Jesus is actually going to die. Perhaps it's dawning on them. He actually meant it. The shepherd was going to be struck. The lamb was going to die. But their Jesus, their leader, their their teacher and friend going to die. And it crumbles around them. This was not how it was meant to be. The fear kicks in, the disappointment, the threat. So they fled. Verse 50, it's such a cruel moment. And they all left him and fled. They all left him. These men who had said they'd even die for him. These men who had seen his anguish and pain. They ran off into the dark of night. They even ran off naked. The clothes, clothes strewn on that tree-covered hillside. Those last few verses are strange, aren't they? We don't know who it was, but Mark doesn't tell us. But even the shame of being naked in public didn't deter them from fleeing. It was utter self-preservation in the face of everything seemingly collapse around them. They just cried, save yourself. They scattered, they failed, they were utterly weak. Lost in their sin, they abandoned Jesus to his death. Just imagine Jesus looking around him, Peter, Andrew, Thomas, gone into the darkness. But Jesus, he doesn't run. He doesn't fight. But instead, he says, verse 49, but let the scriptures be filled. Here again, he submits himself to the will of God. He knows the truth of God's word, the goodness of God's plan, and so faces what is to come. He has prayed, God has strengthened him, and he's utterly firm. Even in complete social betrayal. Judas and now the rest of them. He's firm as they all fail. Firm as they all fail. Jesus the shepherd, utterly firm as his sheep fail and scatter. These these are such dramatic and and sobering events. As we look at this contrast of Jesus and his disciples, his firm stand, their failure, we we actually just start to see ourselves in it all. But not only ourselves, we also see the glory of our Savior. We need to see what's going on in this total failure of the disciples and let it point us to Jesus all the more. Now, what went wrong Why did those who had sounded so strong end so weak? Well, we need to see this. Our failure comes from our trust in faltering foundations. I'll say that again. Our failure comes from our trust in faltering foundations. These disciples are putting their trust in all the wrong places. Firstly, they've they've put it in themselves. They're really confident about what they can do and achieve. Verse 31, Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now, what they're seeking to do is a good thing, isn't it? They they can't be faulted on wanting to stay faithful for Jesus. But it's the confidence. It's a confidence in themselves. That's, that's where they saw the strength. They thought, yes, I've got this. I'm one of Jesus's 12. I'm part of the crack squad. I've got the strength. And doesn't this creep into our lives for Jesus? You know, often our our desire to see and do good things for Jesus is centered on our own strength. I'm I'm going to do great things for God. I'm in a good place right now and I'm going to change the world. I'm going to be a history maker. I'm going to serve in this way. I'm going to evangelize in that place. I'm going to go on mission over there. God needs me. I'm doing good right now. And this is the the message of most spirituality books or self-help books. As Lauren Hill sang many years ago, the answer, it was in me. The top-selling spirituality book on Amazon right now quotes this line approvingly: You are the master of your destiny. You can influence, direct, and control your environment. You can make your life what you want it to be. And yet, for all the desire to do good, just look at the disciples. It was an utter catastrophe. They couldn't pray. When Jesus asked them to, and they couldn't stay when he needed them to. Their confidence in their own strength was utterly unfounded, wasn't it? In the key moments, they failed. Their their, their foundation faltered. If their confidence is in the self, then their key response is preservation of the self. This kind of living, it leads to a deep pride when things are going well. But it covers a very shallow security. If, if things fail, there is no bedrock. The self just implodes. There's no sure foundation. We're just left wrecked. Perhaps you've experienced that. You've projected a good image. You've succeeded. You've believed in yourself. But what then the cracks have appeared in the facade. You, you have a few moments. Down moments, a few failures, you, uh, uh, you just pen them down to your failure to believe. That's just little setbacks, I'll keep going, I'll, I'll keep it right. But as you look inside, you feel the sham. Because like the disciples, for all the bravado, inside we're actually weak and sinful. Our, our failure comes from trusting in faltering foundations. But it wasn't just that the disciples were looking inwards. I wonder if they're riding the high of Jesus's ministry of the last three years. All they could see was success. Yes, there'd been some opposition, but Jesus had outwitted it. Yes, there'd been some setbacks, but Jesus was going to bring victory. They trusted this path of success, how it all looked. Now, these disciples started the passage saying they'll die with Jesus and end it utterly fleeing. Now what's changed in between? Well it's the shepherd has been struck. Jesus has actually been arrested. It's real. This isn't hypothetical anymore. It's actually going on in front of them. Real guards with clubs and swords. Real treachery by Judas. All they'd been holding on was how it looked. But when the darkness came. When the pressure was turned up, when suddenly the reality of Jesus' death appeared, well, then again, their shallow foundations were exposed. They, they liked the success, not the one who brought success. They enjoyed the miracles, but had forgotten the miracle worker. They'd absorbed the teaching, but abandoned the teacher even as they, they looked to Jesus, somehow they actually forgot Jesus. His words, his faithfulness, his trust of scripture. They forgot his care, his provision, his goodness to them. They were blind to the heart of the Lord as they looked on his demise. And perhaps as we get involved in Christian things, that's us. We love how things look. The church numbers, the popular minister, the lovely music. But when the hard bits appear, when church actually involves suffering, the hard work, the setbacks, the difficult decisions, the loss of members, no thanks, I don't want this kind of Jesus, this isn't for me. Or perhaps when it comes from outside, someone questioning your faith, they, they attack you for what you hold dear. Ah, but perhaps Jesus isn't as strong as I thought, I don't want this kind of Jesus. And we run. This is a temptation just as much for me as it is for you. You know, this is a great job that I get to do when things go well. But what about when they don't? Failure comes through trusting in faltering foundations. I suppose what I'm saying is this. We are not so different to the disciples as we think. As we look at them, it's tempting to think we wouldn't have done that. We would have stood firm. But remember the end of the passage. They all left him and fled. All, everyone. In our own hearts lurks that same trust. The same trust in faltering foundations, whether it's our own inner strength or, or perhaps the good bits of being a Christian. We would have failed him just like them. But have a look at Jesus. As we've seen somehow in the most staggeringly intense and horrifying situations, he stayed firm. He was resolute. He was faithful when the disciples were faithless. He was firm when they fell. He was strong as they were weak. He was pure as they sinned. Just, just get this. If you remember nothing else from this evening's sermon, let it be this. Jesus was not only firm as everyone failed around him. Not just firm as they failed, but he was firm for those who failed him. Jesus was firm for those who failed. Jesus, our Savior, was utterly obedient. He was completely obedient to the will of God. There was no sin in him. The book of Hebrews, when talking about Jesus in the garden, crying out to God, puts it like this in chapter 5. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus was perfect throughout his life. But but as the intensity of the suffering and temptation grew, so did his obedience. He wasn't just obedient in the small things. But even in the very big things, as he looked into the abyss of hell, as he experienced the utter abandonment of his friends, he still trusted in God, his father. Rather than turning to himself, he fell on his face in prayer. Rather than only wanting success, he faced his betrayer. In the midst of it all, he still said, not my will, but your will. He still trusted in the fulfillment of scripture and the truth of God's words. And he did this all for the exact people who were letting him down. As his disciples failed him, he began to experience their hell, their punishment in their place. As his friends fled in fear, he walked towards his, uh, the death that would save those exact disciples. He wasn't sturdy for those who helped themselves. He wasn't steadfast for those who get up and do better. He wasn't firm for the ones who think they just need to get stronger. He was firm for those who failed. And it's the same today. He's firm for us who fail. Jesus was obedient to death, even death on a cross for his people. His weak, sinful, frail, failing people. Isn't this extraordinary? What love. He's the rock. He's the anchor. He's the firm foundation for you. We, we mustn't come to this story and think the answer is to be more like Jesus and less like the disciples. To be stronger, not weaker. That's what we need to do. Do better. But that's doing exactly what the disciples did. It's, it's back to believing in ourselves. We've got to solve the problem. We've got to be better than the disciples. Be better than Peter. Nor is the answer just to flip it round. Well, at least I'm not as bad as Judas. No, the, the whole story emphasizes it's only Jesus who stayed firm. Only him while everyone else failed. We cannot do it. Instead, it's Jesus. He was firm for those who have fail. Who fail. He's, he is where true strength resides. He's the solid rock, the foundation. He did this for us. Not just as an example, but to be the source of eternal life for us. His obedience means we can inherit life. His strength means we can know God. His love so we can be free. He faced God's wrath for us so that we might become God's children. And so we fall at the feet of Jesus Christ and we trust him. Not ourselves. Not in surface successes, but in Jesus himself. We trust in Christ alone for his glory alone. We we take our hands off the weak, fraying thread of our own strength. And we cling to the thick, unbreakable rope of his. We come to him for forgiveness. We acknowledge our sin we, and our trust in false foundations, our failure. And we rest ourselves on him. Both for eternal safety and for our daily living. Now, this is hard because it means realizing we're not as good or as strong as we thought we were. But it completely changes the bedrock of our lives. Rather than based on changing things, faltering foundations, we rest on something immovable. Christ was utterly obedient. Nothing can change that. He can't lose his obedience. It can't be chipped away or shaken apart. And so this gives us a great security in life. Rather than trying to keep up pretense, we are loved securely. We're part of God's family. Even as we find weakness and failure in our lives, it doesn't have to rock us. It doesn't have to send us into a downward spiral because we know it's always true and we know our value is not based on it. As our church Life struggles as we see weakness and pain. We don't lose hope because our religion isn't based on what it looks like, but on Jesus himself, our defender, our savior, our Lord. And what's amazing is that as we trust in Jesus, we start to look more like Jesus. Now, not that we have our own gardens of Gethsemane. None of us are facing the ultimate wrath of God for sins of many. But as we have Jesus as our security, as we have Jesus as our strong foundation, we start to grow in our trust in God's word like he did. We hold on to his promises. We let his commands and guidance steer our lives even when it's hard. We don't just follow his words when we like them. We follow them when we don't. We trust his word like Christ. And also as we look to the one who is firm, we start to pray like him. Knowing the strength isn't inside means we spend more time on our knees to the one who has ultimate power and authority. We wrestle with him as hard things come. We plead with him to do his will. We submit ourselves to God's will even in the face of persecution and suffering now yes we can pray brief prayers I've been challenged and I wonder if Christ's example here points us to more fervent earnest times of prayer as we know our weakness and his strength we we pour out our hearts to him more often in deeper ways why because we have a steady foundation in Christ now and for eternity. We have Jesus Christ, the one who is firm for us who fail, the one who prayed in this garden, who is resolute when arrested, the shepherd who was struck so that his people might be saved. What a glorious savior we have. Amen.